is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, for a new segment on our show, although Carol has been with us before, segment titled Writing Wrongs. Carol, just a bit of bio on her. She has her undergraduate degree from Stanford, her master's from the London School of Economics. She had a distinguished career in journalism, including as a war correspondent. She got a law degree from Harvard, and she has been the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts for the past 20 years. I should note by way of disclosure that I have been the uh, director of the Western Massachusetts Legal Office of the American Civil Liberties Union for the past 35 years. So by my lights, Carol is kind of a newbie on the, on the field of uh, American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts players. But so how's the new job going, Carol? <laughs> it's great to be here, Bill, Buzz, and to all your listeners. It's so great to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to ask you about something that came up on our show yesterday when we had Raul Colon on as a guest. He is a distinguished in, in this field, very well-known uh, children's illustrator. Absolutely. And he has a book about Roberto Clemente about 15 years ago. Uh, and Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida put that book about Roberto Clemente, this children's book, on a list of books that should be banned in Florida. It is unbelievable. And then Floridians, Floridians, well, said, wait a second, he's a sports hero. How can you possibly take his book, a book about him off the shelves in schools in Florida? And the day before yesterday, Governor DeSantis covering it all up and saying, oh, it's just a joke allowed the book to go back on the shelves. We're not sure if it's there yet, but it's at least off the list of censored and banned books. What I want to ask you is how serious is the threat of these book bannings? How serious a threat is it to freedom of speech, freedom of education, freedom of inquiry in the United States, both in Florida and in other states? And then I want to get to the question of how serious a threat is book banning in Massachusetts today? Let's start with Florida. Oh, it, it's just shocking. I mean, he can say it's a joke, but it's really no laughing matter that he's going around and he and, and Governor Abbott in Texas and other places are banning books um, based on the content. It's a clear violation of free speech um, and the right to learn and, and education for children. Um, and, and, it's, and it's it's not only wrong in principle, but it actually hurts individual people, students. You know, we know that rates of suicide and depression are higher among uh, LGBTQ students, among uh, students of uh, black and brown students and BIPOC students. And so the fact that any book that would make them feel welcome, that would tell their history, um, being taken from the shelves is a direct on, attack on their ability to learn, their right to learn, um, and the rights of their parents to make sure that their children are included in our education system. So this is incredibly serious um, and really is the reason that the ACLU has made it a top priority to try to fight these book bans across the country, as well as here in Massachusetts. Book bans are not easy to fight, though, because there is a significant body of law that says local school districts have the right to make curriculum-based decisions on, on what books they will allow in their libraries. And so the fact that it may make no sense and that it may be 
uh, and really horrible use of discretion, local school boards really do have a fair amount of say of what books they will or won't allow on the shelves, right? Right. Well, yeah, no, that's true. And not only that, um, these large states, particularly Texas, when they um, make curriculum changes because of the economics of it, that often impacts uh, school districts far and wide. And it's one of the reasons that we at the ACLU think it's so important that parents who care about freedom of speech and about having um, an equal education for all students are raising their voices in their local school boards and in their local town meetings and at the other states at the county level to make sure that the people who would ban the books don't have the loudest voice or the greatest number of votes. Um, in these school districts. So th this is really a battle that we're seeing now, not just going from the federal to the state level, but from the state to the hyper-local level uh, to defend civil rights and civil liberties. And I can't tell you how wonderful it is to hear parents who want these books to stay on the shelves also raising their voice. So it's not just this very loud, truculent minority who's setting the, the, the determination of what kind of books we're going to have on the shelves for our students. You make it sound, and I think I understand this correctly, that what is really going to play out, not only in southern states, like Florida and Texas, uh, but across the country, is a school district by school district fight about books, which sounds yeah. to me sounds to me like something out of a dystopian novel. But is that really where we're at? Yeah, Bill, that dystopian novel would be banned from your school library, just going to say that. Um, but it's it's happening here. And for people who think that we in Massachusetts are immune from that, I'm sad to say it's just not true. Um, a recent survey conducted by the Massachusetts Library Association has found a quadrupling of efforts to ban books um, from libraries here in Massachusetts. Um, you know, the number of, uh, of 100 libraries that responded to this group's annual survey. Um, last year, there were 78 book challenges so far uh, I'm sorry, 20 book challenges. So far, there are 78, so almost a quadrupling of efforts. Um, and we at the ACLU of Massachusetts, um, we've been getting dozens of calls from concerned parents, um, parents who are concerned about efforts across the state to try to ban books from the public schools. Um, and so that's why last month, we sent a letter along with the LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, GLAD, um, urging the Massachusetts public school districts to make sure that we're protecting students' legal rights and rejecting censorship in these school libraries. And so we sent that letter to the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents and School Committees, as well as a whole host of other education officials and superintendents, because they need to know that these uh, efforts are coming, these are coordinated efforts, um, often from outside groups, but, but we need to know that our school officials know that the ACLU and GLAD um, and other like-minded groups and advocates are behind them in their efforts to make sure that our students um, their rights are protected, uh, not only their right to education, but a right to equality in education so that they're, you, know, you don't have select people who are banned from being talked about in the books. Um, and also there's like a right to learn, which is comes under Article 19 and the free expression. Um, so there are some legal tools that we have, Bill, and you, as you know, and we at the ACLU and GLAD are fighting back against these efforts to try to keep books away from our students. Article 19 of the state constitution, a right to education? Well, there's right to education, then Article 16, uh, right to speech and right to learn, to, to be exposed, to, to right to hear uh, things that you, that you have a right to learn. So there's both an equality and a free speech claim that we invoked in our letter. 
Yeah, in Article 16, we should point out to our listeners, uh, the Massachusetts constitutional guarantee of free speech is broader in many respects than the First Amendment guarantee. Carol Rose, as, as Executive Director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, could you spend another couple minutes with us, please, letting us know what the books are that are being subjected to censorship, both in Florida and Texas, and what are the books that are being uh, pointed to as being inappropriate for inclusion in public school libraries here in Massachusetts? Oh, I mean, it's it's any kind of book that touches upon LGBTQ matters, any kind of book that touches upon uh, racial justice or the history of slavery. Um, I mean, you name it, um, you know, books are being banned across the board. Um, and they're often books that are, you know, pretty well known and pretty famous books. You know, uh, things like The City to a Young Girl was one of them. Uh, that was in there. And I don't have a list of all of the books that have been, that there's been an effort to ban, um, but let it be known that it's just books that talk about racial justice, books that talk about LGBTQ equality. Um, and those are the books that people are saying they don't want their students to have, an act, have any access to. And you said the ACLU of Massachusetts sent a letter to the Association of School Superintendents um, right. and saying this these challenges are coming be aware we're here to protect the right to learn the right to speak the right to read um did you get a response back um you know no i mean what we're hearing from our grateful frankly grateful school officials and grateful parents who are contacting us and saying thank you um and also contacting us now increasingly because it's happening in their school districts so we're learning about it um from parents who are worried from places like medfield and mattapoisett and seekonk abington hanover newburyport sharon um you know these efforts are happening across the commonwealth as well as across the country um and so we think it's really important that we lift this up before it hits your school district uh to make sure that parents in you know in in all parts of the state are raising their voices to make sure so the school officials know it's not just that the only squeaky wheel aren't the people who want to ban books that we also raise our voices in defense of keeping those books in our public libraries and in our public schools is this going to play out state by state is it going to play out federal district court by federal district court book by book yeah, I, I think it's going to be really, Bill, I think it's going to be really school district by school district initially. Um, you know, and we're going to be fighting as we always do at the ACLU in the courts, in the legislature, uh, in local towns and, and meetings. And if people listening to this know that this is happening in their school district, I would urge them to contact the ACLU of Massachusetts um, and to let us know about it so we can talk to you about what tools are at your disposal to try to fight back against these efforts at censorship. You said that the letter that the ACLU sent was sent in conjunction with our, our friends and colleagues at GLAAD, uh, mm -hmm. pinpointing or highlighting the fact that books that are being banned are, many of them are being uh, banned because they uh, speak about and teach about equality for persons and groups that have been historically marginalized. I'm wondering if there is a concerted effort to unban books to preserve freedom of inquiry and speech and the right to learn and read um, among groups across Massachusetts and the country. It seems to me this is an issue that really would unite a lot of different groups that fight for the rights of marginalized communities. 
Yeah, you know the you know this bill. The ACLU works in coalition, in alliance with all sorts of groups. So in this particular instance, we are working with gay and lesbian advocates and defenders. Glad, um, and in other instances, we're willing to work with any other group who wants to take up this issue of censorship um, because we're stronger together, and we like to work in coalition. And because uh, there are different groups in different parts of the state. If there are groups out there who are interested in joining forces with the ACLU and GLAD to fight back against some censorship, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Carol Rose, we're going to take a break in a few minutes, but I'd like to start the conversation with you about another topic, and that is the issue of abortion access, both in the country and in Massachusetts. And there is actually a lot happening in Massachusetts, which may be affected potentially dramatically and adversely by a lawsuit in Texas. Could you tell our listeners about that, please? Well, so the lawsuit in Texas that's coming up, and it's actually going to be briefed uh, tomorrow, uh, is happened, started in November of 2022, just last November. And it was just days after the midterm election, where, as we all know, voters overwhelmingly demonstrated support for abortion rights. Um, but nonetheless, several anti-abortion groups sued the FDA uh, over its approval of mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs that are used in medication abortions. So what this lawsuit out of Texas asks a federal court judge to do is to order the FDA to withdraw its approval of mifepristone, uh, which would remove it from the market and basically ban medication abortion nationwide. Um, and what's really pernicious is that these groups deliberately filed this case in the Northern District of Texas so that it would be in front of this judge, Matthew Kesmarek, uh, and because Mark was appointed to the bench by Donald Trump and has since issued several major both anti-contraception, anti-LGBTQ, and anti-immigrant opinions. So uh, the plaintiff's request for a preliminary injunction is going to be fully briefed uh, tomorrow. And we don't know. So tomorrow the court might hold oral arguments on the motion or they might just issue a decision. And the judge could just issue a decision without a hearing. Uh, on the parties. And, and so there's a lot of things, different things that might happen. Um, one is the district court could dismiss the case, in which case the anti-abortion people could appeal. Uh, if the district, and it's also unlikely given that it's Judge Kesmarek. Um, they could, the court could grant an emergency injunction in part, like upholding approval of mifepristone, but ordering the FDA to reinstate previous restrictions, things like requiring patients to travel to a health center. Uh, to pick up their medication, which obviously really discriminates against uh, people of fewer means who don't have the ability to travel or take time off work, et cetera. Or what we really worry about is that the district court could grant an emergency injunction in full and order the FDA to withdraw its approval. Um, if that happened, it would basically be a ban nationwide on the use of medication abortion, which makes it all the more important that states like Massachusetts have very strong protections to ensure that people can access abortion here. Um, but about half of abortions right now are medicine abortions. They're, it's the safest uh, way to have an abortion, not to mention when people miscarry, it needs to be used and things like that. Um, and so by putting a ban on mifepristone, it really uh, will undermine the ability of, of thousands or millions of people who are seeking abortion care from being able to do so and make it only available to those who have the wealth to travel to states like Massachusetts. So it is possible that by tomorrow there could be a nationwide injunction against the use of misopristone and therefore the millions and millions of people who use this drug um, 
will be well they'll be prohibited from doing that from accessing it that that's, that's really right. possible tomorrow that's possible now you know have no doubt the groups like the aclu and our allied groups are going to immediately push for a stay or a halt to a nationwide injunction and so we'll have to see how that plays out so there'll be a lot of litigation no matter what the court rules tomorrow um, or does tomorrow there's going to be litigation continuing but the worst case scenario is as of tomorrow um, the, the use of mifepristone is going to be effectively banned nationwide um, and so that's incredibly incredibly discouraging but it's also not surprising bill because we've known for a long time that the people who are opposed to um, access to abortion care are also opposed to access to contraception they're also opposed to people having gender affirming care and therapy they're also opposed to equal marriage they're also opposed to contraception i mean that the vision that the extremists have on these issues is so you know sort of a handmaid's tale if you would kind of a vision of what it would do to people um that it's so important that we pay attention and fight back even though it's hard to do so but you know the aclu operates in all 50 states we're fighting back in the courts and in state legislatures in congress um, and here in massachusetts i'm so proud to say that we work with our fellow advocates at reproductive equity now and planned parenthood and other groups across the commonwealth um, to make sure that we in massachusetts have the strongest legal protections for both patients and providers um, and one of the things we did really recently, if I might, just to talk about what we're doing here in Massachusetts, um, is just last couple weeks ago, we launched a new abortion legal hotline, which is a free and confidential hotline for both patients and providers who can call if they have legal questions about whether they're able to talk to someone in another state about abortion rights, get an abortion here, help somebody travel here. I mean, all sorts of questions. Um, and the number on that, if I might, uh, is 833 309-6301. Again, that's 833-309-6301. And we have trained up over 150 attorneys um, from the ACLU, of course, but also from Foley Hoag, Goodwin Proctor, Goldston and Stewart's, Mintz Levin, Ropes and Gray, um, these wonderful law firms that have all just eagerly stepped up to try to be a part of ensuring that people have safe access to abortion here in Massachusetts. We are speaking with Carol Rose. She's the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and speak more about the abortion legal hotline. What is being done in Massachusetts to protect this precious right? We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. 
Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, Fun Home, leapt off the page and onto the Broadway stage. Alison describes her landmark comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, as half op-ed column, half serialized Victorian novel. Alison Bechdel will be at Smith Thursday, March 2nd, reading from her new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, and more. Alison Bechdel, a reading, plus a book signing with the Broadside Bookshop, Thursday, March 2nd, at John M. Green Hall at Smith College. It's free. Get tickets online at Smith College Tickets. In today's competitive hiring environment, job seekers demand stability, competitive salary, generous benefits, work-life balance, and a path to retirement. The Massachusetts Department of Correction can offer all of those things. This is the perfect time to join the team as a correction officer and take advantage of the accelerated hiring process in a career that's challenging yet rewarding and allows one to make a positive difference in the lives of others by providing custody care and support programs for those under supervision. Salary start at $62,000 and include a pension plan, health, dental, and vision insurance, as well as paid sick, personal, and comp time. Get full pay during your academy training, education pay, tuition reimbursement, and the option of early retirement after 20 years. If you have never considered a career in corrections, now is the perfect time. Apply today at mass.gov doc recruitment. Start your rewarding career at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Paid for by the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Well, we should get, I guess, point out that we do not have a say on what advertisers come on with respecting that freedom of speech thing that we talk about. But that was ironic, to say the least. <laughs> we are speaking with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We are talking about the right to abortion. Uh, under our state constitution and about the abortion legal hotline, which Carol was telling us about before the break. I, I think that some of the questions you raised are issues that our listeners would like to know more about, and in particular, with regard to this case in Texas, which uh, anti, anti-choice uh, activists are seeking a nationwide ban on mifepristone, which is the primary way uh, which abortions actually take place that combination of drugs in the United States. And so I'd like you to tell us more, if you could, about, well, for example, someone calls up from Texas or one of the other states where uh, abortion is, is banned and says, mm-hmm. can I access, can I get a prescription from Massachusetts? Can a provider in Massachusetts help me? If I come to Massachusetts, can I get the drug and go back to my state? All those sorts of questions. What, what, can you give us some guidance on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I want to make it really clear to all of your listeners that, you know, whatever the court does in this case tomorrow, no matter what happens, abortion, abortion will remain legal here in Massachusetts. Um, and so the work that the ACLU did along with uh, Reproductive Equity Now, Planned Parenthood, and other groups uh, is really important because it's the strongest in the country, protections for both patients and providers. And that's going to become even more important if, in fact, um, telemedicine abortion, uh, there's a ban on that because of this case. Um, And so, you know, the ACLU's position is everybody across the country should be able to get reproductive health care that they need without any fear of arrest or criminalization. Um, But the when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade the first time uh, after 50 years, you know, thus restricting rights um, rather than expanding rights for the first time in 
recent history, that, at least that I can remember. Um, we now have this horrible patchwork of state laws. So, you know, uh, if so, the answer to your question becomes quite complicated. So, if a provider or a helper here in Massachusetts helps somebody in Texas to seek abortion care, uh, or in Florida, or in Missouri, or in Utah, it really depends on the state law in those places as well as the law here in Massachusetts. So the court has created this patchwork of inconsistent laws um, and it's very confusing for, for people who uh, want to either get abortion care or to help someone else get abortion care. And that's why um, together with our allies at Reproductive Equity Now and also the state attorney general, Andrea Campbell, as part of this hotline. We've created this hotline, um, which again, if I might say it's 833-309. 6301. Um, and we've trained over 150 attorneys across Massachusetts uh, to be able to work individually with people who have these questions because there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, this patchwork of inconsistent state laws um, that the court has left us with requires that people who are not sure um, get the legal advice that will help them in their individual situation um, because there's no longer a federal constitutional protected right um, that we used to have under Roe versus Wade. You informed our listeners, Carol, that uh, regardless of what happens federally, that in Massachusetts, we have a state constitutional right to reproductive choice to abortion. Well, that's true. so far so good. But what about the state, a state that has no such state constitutional right, has no such uh, statutory right, and in fact criminalizes abortion and says something like, you can't, or it's the law say, you can't have an abortion. If you do, it's a crime. Um, and I suppose could go so far as to say, and if you leave the state to get an abortion, that's a crime. I mean, where, mm -hmm. where, where does this anti-abortion fervor, uh, this, the government should decide everything for women, where does it stop? Well, I mean, hopefully it's going to stop in Congress. Hopefully there's going to be a move in Congress to protect access to reproductive health care in Congress for the entire country. So even if the Constitution doesn't ensure it, at a minimum, we should have a federal statute that does. Um, but given that that's apparently gridlock in Congress seems unlikely to uh, open up anytime soon. Um, I think what we can do here in Massachusetts is to make sure that we remain a state that provides abortion care, that we protect providers and patients and that we make it possible for people to travel here um, and when they do their privacy rights need to be protected so one of the bills that we have pending before the Massachusetts legislature would ensure that um, people's uh, location data like your cell phone location data can't be sold um, to, uh, for other uses so you know maybe you have your cell phone that you're using because of your mapping uh, application or something but that shouldn't be that can be used for mapping but it shouldn't be available to say a bounty hunter from Texas who wants to know if you've traveled to uh, an abortion clinic. Um, and so we're doing, right now we're turning from not only providing this legal hotline to make sure people have the legal assistance that they need to navigate this really uh, patchwork of, of state laws, but we're also taking moves to make sure that people's privacy is protected so that when they come into our state, they can't be tracked by outside uh, people who would try to uh, prevent them from seeking abortion care or try to criminalize access to medical care here in Massachusetts. 
We are going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Carol Rose. She is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Carol, could you give the number again for the abortion legal hotline? Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. It's 833-309-6301. All right. And as they like to say on uh, NPR, the number again is? 833-309-6301. We have a future in radio. Thank you, Carol Rose. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, talk with you, Bill. Thank you so much. This has been our new segment with Carol Rose, Writing Wrongs. She will be with us. Carol will be, will be with us every month on this segment, on this on this time of the month. Thank you so much, Carol. We'll be right back with the Reverend and the Rabbi after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Businessman Eric Schur may be at risk of losing liquor licenses on his music venues in downtown Northampton. The Northampton License Commission seized the liquor license from Schur's Pearl Street nightclub, which has been largely dormant since the onset of the pandemic in 2020. Mass Live reports commissioners told Schur he has until June to reopen the Iron Horse Music Hall, which has also been closed since the pandemic began. He also has until June to reopen the Green Room, a bar a few doors down from Iron Horse. Sure will have the opportunity to appeal the revocation of his Pearl Street nightclub license to the state's Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission. If he fails to reopen the two properties, he risks losing his licenses to serve alcohol on site. The limited supply of liquor licenses in Northampton has made getting one either a matter of immense luck or great cost. Jury selection continues today in the case of a retired Westfield police detective accused of killing his wife. Brian Fanion allegedly killed his wife Amy during an argument on his lunch break and staged it as a suicide at the couple's home. Police allegedly recovered Google searches on Fanion's electronic devices related to keeping as much of his pension as he could amid a divorce. Fanion is charged with first-degree murder. An owl flew through a glass window of a Northampton home yesterday. According to the Northampton Police Department, the owl flew through the resident's glass window, shattering the glass. Northampton Animal Control was called and determined there were no injuries. The owl was then returned to the wilderness. Icy this morning and scattered light mixed showers today, along with some patchy freezing drizzle. High temperatures in the 30s this morning, cooling through the 20s this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight, some scattered snow and sleet showers this evening. Overnight low of 20 to 26. Sun cloud mixed tomorrow, windy a high of 32 to 36. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden recorrió el centro de Kiev en una visita no anunciada el lunes y prometió apoyar a Ucrania todo el tiempo que sea necesario en un viaje programado para eclipsar al Kremlin antes del primer aniversario de la invasión de Rusia. Cuando el presidente ruso Vladimir Putin lanzó su invasión hace casi un año, pensó que Ucrania era débil y que Occidente estaba dividido. Pensó que podría sobrevivirnos, pero estaba completamente equivocado, dijo Biden. Los tanques rusos calcinados se alzan como símbolo del asalto fallido de Moscú a la capital al comienzo de su invasión que comenzó el 24 de febrero. Sus fuerzas alcanzaron rápidamente las murallas de Kiev solo para ser rechazadas por una resistencia inesperadamente feroz. Por su parte, Rusia dice que ha anexado casi una quinta parte de Ucrania, mientras que Occidente ha prometido decenas de miles de millones de dólares en ayuda militar a Kiev. 
En otras informaciones, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton votó a favor de formar una comisión para estudiar la posibilidad de reparaciones para los residentes, trabajadores y estudiantes negros. La medida sigue a una acción similar en Amherst y Boston. En una resolución, el Consejo Municipal de Northampton se disculpó por decisiones pasadas que, según dijo, arraigaron la segregación y la discriminación en áreas como la vivienda y las licencias. El Consejo Municipal también votó para crear una comisión para estudiar qué iniciativas deberían financiarse para reparar esos daños y nutrir a la comunidad y la cultura negras. El concejal de la ciudad, Gary Perry, quien copatrocinó la resolución, dijo que ahora trabajará con la oficina de la alcaldesa y otros concejales para presentar una especie de esquema de cuál será el cargo de la comisión y un cronograma, así como cuál será la composición de la comisión. Perry dijo que planea tener el esquema listo para el 30 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Talk the Talk. <laughs> and this is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment, which we present every Thursday. We have with us today, Reverend Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. She is with us the fourth Thursday of every month. Reverend and the Rabbi segment is on every Thursday, uh, the second half of the first hour in the morning and the second half of the last hour in the afternoon. We will not have a quiz on that at the end of this. Uh, Carol Bull, thank you so much for being with us. For those of our listeners who are just hearing you for the first time, uh, the United Church of Ware, what is United about the United Church of Ware? What does that mean? Yeah, the United Church of Ware is, uh, it's called United for a number of reasons. We are a United uh, Church of Christ Church, a UCC church, and also a United Methodist Church. And those congregations came together and joined uh, as one. So we have, we're bi-denominational, two denominations in our church. Now, yesterday was Ash Wednesday, uh, and I'm sure you have been speaking of this in your church. I, for those of us who come from a different religious uh, tradition, I would really appreciate knowing more about Ash Wednesday, what it is, why it is, what scripture says about it. So let me turn the microphone over to you and let's have a little bit of a, of a lesson on this, if you would, please. Sure. So, um, first of all, I want to remind you, I didn't grow up in a church. So in my late 20s is when I got involved in a church in Boston, a UCC church there. And um, uh, Ash Wednesday, of course, is a time where you, the, the, the pastor puts a cross on people's foreheads with ashes that are saved from the palms from the previous year. And um, so last night uh, we had it was a you know tricky weather wise uh, it didn't snow in where till after our service our service was at 5:30 um, but uh, I'm gonna what I'd like to do first is to share a bit of scripture uh, that I focused on in my sermon last night um, and I'm just gonna read it to you um, it's from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Um, where Jesus says, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet, 
people feel like he was teasing when he said that because it's a hyperbole. So whenever you give arms, give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, though, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Poor me, I'll add. Truly, I tell you, they have received their award. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Lastly, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, then your heart will be also. Now, Reverend Carol Bull, pastor at the United Church of Ware, is this part of the story of Ash Wednesday or of Lent? It's part of what comes up. So we have a lectionary, a revised common lectionary, which about 60% of Christians in the U.S. refer to. And in that lectionary, you get four passages and you can choose two or four or one of them for your service. So this is the one that I chose for our service last night to, for us, for me to then do a very short sermon on. Okay, well, let's go back a bit. Uh, remedial lesson for those of us who need it. Um, where where is Lent mentioned in the Bible? What is it? And where does Ash Wednesday itself come from? And is it mentioned in the Bible? Yeah, so Ash Wednesday is post-biblical holiday. It was not done during Jesus's time. And um, I don't know all of the history of it, uh, but it's 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 to keep churches and faith communities alive throughout the year. So we have these different seasons of the year that we reflect on when they come up. And, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about one of the issues with, with Lent uh, after I give you a little bit more uh, information. Okay, well, uh, let's hear about Lent. Um, is Ash Wednesday part of Lent or is that? It's the beginning. It's considered the beginning of Lent. It's the first day of Lent. Okay. And, um, so the title of my sermon that I gave is Ash Wednesday and Lent, Ego and Pride. Um, and I'm going to define a couple of those terms, Bill, and then you and I will discuss them a little bit if need be. But they certainly were mentioned in the scripture. Uh, okay, well, let me, let me, let me know for one sec before you get to that. Yep. So I understand Ash Wednesday is a holy day. It's a day of prayer. It's a day of fasting in many Christian, Western Christian denominations. Um, and it's the beginning of Lent. 
Lent is, as I understand it, which is pretty minimal, um, is a time of deprivation, of self-deprivation. Can you tell us a bit more about Lent, which I think that would give us some context. For yeah, so there's, um, you know, uh, there's many different practices that are done during Lent. Um, but it, what it is, is it echoes Jesus's time in the wilderness uh, of 40 days and 40 nights. So that's what we are in, is this kind of wilderness time. And traditionally in Christianity, it has been about giving something up. Uh, people nowadays are changing that, uh, changing that around. And in fact, uh, in my church this coming Sunday, we have an associate worship leader. He's going to be preaching partly on what can you add to your spiritual practices that will help you feel alive and encouraged in your experience of God, of your understanding. So that's, it's a, you know, things are changing in how these things are done. And this is about six weeks, and this is the six weeks between uh, Ash Wednesday and Easter? Is, is exactly, that exactly. Yeah, so it's all of that, you know, there were times when uh, both Moses and Jesus went off. It went up the mountain, took time off. It was often related to 40 days. And those, that is a significant period of time. And, you know, as humans, we kind of ask, well, what, where, where did they go and what were they doing? You know, and um, there's a lot of different approaches to what they actually were doing. But the, the belief is that uh, he was in the wilderness uh, in order to face uh, what he knew, felt was coming, which was the death by the, by the regime to kill him. Um, and that, you know, and that then leads us to Good Friday and then to Easter. Okay, so just go back just to make sure I have at least some grasp of this. The, mm -hmm. the, the period of Lent itself, the 40 days, the uh, uh, six weeks or so in the wilderness, is, is this specifically referenced in, in, in the Bible? The, yeah, the, the day, yeah, his going off is mentioned in the Bible. What isn't, what wasn't done was Ash Wednesday during his time. And, you know, there, there's all this uh, history of how churches came to do what they do now. Some of it has, is very biblically based, some of it is not. And, you know, there's a whole, you know, theme of historical research that's always been gone, gone on for that. I'd like to know this, that I, I uh, remember uh, certainly uh, going back some years, people would say what they are giving up for Lent. Is that part of the tradition that you're, that someone... Yeah, so particularly in Roman Catholicism, that's been part of the tradition. And some of my congregants were saying, you know, as kids, we didn't really celebrate this so much. The Ash thing seems to have come later, you know, even in their lifetime. So um, I think... Yeah, we'd have to ask, you know, each community, when did you start celebrating Ash Wednesday and why and what was that about? But I think um, there's been a lot of ecumenical work where people learn different practices from different parts of uh, Christianity and other traditions. And maybe that has made way for us to share some of these things that perhaps earlier in Christian churches weren't done. And on Ash Wednesday, you certainly see numbers of people 
walking on the streets uh, and in the community who have a black ash, I take it in the, in the nature of a cross on their forehead. Um, yes. is, that, is that something that happens in your congregation or no? Yeah, yeah this is what we did last night. Uh, we, we did, it's called the Institution of the Ashes. We did something that I had not seen done before though, uh, although many churches do this routinely, we did the imposition of the ashes and then we did communion afterwards. So they get to receive the bread and the cup, so the body and the blood of Christ, after we have said to them, from the dust you have come and, from the, and to the dust you will return. So it's this combination of facing your mortal life on this earth and then also receiving the bread and the cup. We are speaking with Pastor Carol Bull. She is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and continue this conversation. I really find it really fascinating. I so appreciate your time with us every month, Reverend Carol Bull, and we'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. To the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Maura Guzik, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s. A real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 the insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. 
Alison Bechdel's graphic memoir, Fun Home, leapt off the page and onto the Broadway stage. Alison describes her landmark comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, as half op-ed column, half serialized Victorian novel. Alison Bechdel will be at Smith Thursday, March 2nd, reading from her new graphic memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, and more. Alison Bechdel, a reading, plus a book signing with the Broadside Bookshop, Thursday, March 2nd, at John M. Green Hall at Smith College. It's free. Get tickets online at Smith College Tickets. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with the Reverend Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. We've been talking about Lent and Ash Wednesday, which is yesterday. Uh, Carol Bull, I'd like to know this. Uh, you, I know you, in your sermon last night, you talked some about the experience of having ashes put on your head in the the sign of the cross, wearing it on your forehead. What did you tell your congregation? Uh, what I reminded them was that having a cross smudged on our forehead has is a public expression of our perhaps not usually seen or spoken about internalized Christian path. And when we leave services, you know, we have them on our forehead, we're conscious of them at that moment. And then you go out into the world and you're putting gas in your car and people are kind of looking at you, or you go into a store and people are looking at you again. So we could be, I suggested to the congregation, a shining example of our faithfulness to the gospel. Or we might be undertaking a practice, as Jesus says in Matthew, that is hypocritical and ego-filled, that congratulates our smaller self. Congratulates you for being obvious about your religion or your belief and your faith. Is that what you mean? I mean, it's That's right. Yeah, so Jesus is suggesting in all of what he says that the proper uh, motivation uh, for spiritual practice is not to be done to call attention to how holy or saintly we have become. They ought not be done to showily impress others. The point of such practices is to help us connect directly with God with the full honesty of who we really are when we turn to God. Um, and in simplicity and using wide-ranging examples then, Jesus in Matthew tells us that when we pray give alms or charity, fast, or even add another practice during Lent that we'd like to try out, we need to do that with no self-aggrandizement, nothing to boost our swollen or deficient egos. Then, when the treasures of these spiritual practices occur, which we believe they will, our hearts will so then reflect that to the outside world as a gift to others. Yeah, it does remind me a lot of the teachings of Mamadnes, who was the uh, uh, Sephardic Jewish philosopher um, who's, who, who made the point that the highest form of giving is to do it anonymously when you're not asked. Because oh. that, that is, in, that is what, what, what religion and belief in God really teaches. Um, it's not. I, I would like to know this from you. We just have a couple minutes left. We've touched on Lent and the idea of giving something up for Lent. Um, do you ask your congregation to participate in that uh, in that ritual and or that uh, observance uh, and to 
let either you know or to talk to you about what they are doing, what they are giving up for Lent, and why it is meaningful? Uh, you know, I'm certainly open to having those conversations um, with people who, who want to know what they should or could do. You know, it would be a very individual thing depending on where they are in their use of spiritual practices. Um, but whatever they do is really to boost their, set, their experience of being of God, right? Uh, this is a, uh, our church communities, our Christian faith is a we and us faith. It's not a me and I faith. But in the U.S., we get so individualistic. You know, we think, if only I do this practice 50 times, X will happen. Um, so Jesus asks us to prepare for the best, to live expansive lives, give generously, engage the stranger, and care for the needy. And this is, this is a common theme in all of our sermons. Um, the last thing I want to say from another, from another's beautiful words, Lent is not about feeling holy, but about, but about lifelong commitments that help us hold on to the things that will sustain us and others. Well, in the half minute we have left, is this time of Lent preparatory for Easter? Is that part of what, or is big part of what this is about? Yes, and, and we know what's coming, right? In terms of the biblical story. We know what Jesus was facing at that time and that why he needed to go away for that period of time. And he was preparing himself to for what he knew was coming they were going to come track him down and nail him to the cross he knew that and so all of this prepares us as congregants for that devastating friday we are going to leave it there we have been speaking with carol bull she is the pastor at the united church of where she is a regular uh participant with us on the reverend and the rabbi segment which is every thursday Reverend Carol Bull, thank you so much for your time and insight. We really appreciate it. For those who are listening in the afternoon hour, uh, we appreciate your being with us and for understanding it is not enough just to talk the talk. We need to walk the walk. And for those listening in the morning, we have another full hour of talk the talk right after this. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by General Steele.
I'm Deborah Rodriguez. A whopper of a winter storm has triggered widespread power outages and major travel disruptions across the country. Nearly a half million DTE customers have no power in Metro Detroit. Oh, man, it's been a long night. <laughs> yeah. DTE Energy says it's the worst ice storm in nearly 50 years. This woman, her six kids, fiancé, and dog survived a house fire when an ice-covered power line crashed on her house. You know, we got babies out here. It's too cold. This fire was blazing for hours. Hundreds of workers from four states are helping to restore power. Charlie Langton for CBS News, Detroit. More than 2,000 flights have been canceled or delayed in the U.S. today, and there's a blizzard warning in effect for parts of Southern California. A dozen new charges have just been unsealed against a fallen crypto king at federal court in New York. Sam Bankman-Fried had already been charged with fraud, money laundering, and other offenses. The new superseding indictment accuses him of exploiting exploiting the trust of FTX customers and using billions of dollars in stolen deposits for his own purposes. It's taken three weeks, but Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is finally at the site of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. If we get close down here, we get around the side of tank car. Buttigieg, who lives just miles away, has acknowledged he should have gone sooner. Locals have doubted government assurances their air is safe to breathe and their water okay to drink. The number of mass killings tied to extreme in the U.S. has jumped. CBS's Jim Crisula. The number of U.S. mass killings linked to extremism was at least three times higher in the last decade than the total from any other 10-year period since the 1970s. That's according to a report from the Anti-Defamation League. An estimated 164 people died in ideological extremist-related mass killings between 2010 and 2020. The economy grew at a slightly slower than expected pace last quarter. It rose at an annual rate of 2.5%. What does it mean for rate hikes? Business analyst Jill Schlesinger. It is likely that recent strength of data will encourage the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates at its next meeting in March. Look out, Whoville! You're a mean one. Mr. Grinch. Random House says it's coming out with a sequel to the classic children's book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. How the Grinch Lost Christmas will pick up one year after the original. And like the 1957 book, the publisher says it'll teach a valuable lesson about the true spirit of the holiday. Release date set for September 5th. The Dow's up 204. This is CBS News. Business owners, General Steel can help save you thousands by owning your own custom-designed buildings. Call 888-98-STEEL or visit GeneralSteel.com. Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com free. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Its powerful technology identifies people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. You get qualified candidates fast. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for. The needle in the haystack. Four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
The Holyoke Police Department poses substantial risk to the city, according to a recent audit report by an outside contractor. Investigative reporter Dusty Christensen obtained a copy of the 150-page report that detailed the department often fails to follow protocol, does not adequately train officers, and is chronically understaffed. I was surprised by this term that they use substantial risk when talking about the police department's role in the city. They mentioned several times throughout the review that some of the police department's policies or or failure to follow policies poses a legal liability for the city. This news follows months of reporting by Christensen detailing other forms of mismanagement within the police department, such as excessive overtime and ignoring most civilian complaints. The final police audit report will be presented to the Holyoke City Council's Public Safety Committee on March 6th. Another cannabis dispensary is closed. Pleasantries in East Hampton closed their store at the end of January and are reportedly trying to sell their Amherst location near the UMass campus. This comes just weeks after the source on Pleasant Street, Northampton, shut its doors after 10 months in business. Progress is being made for the new elementary school in Amherst. The NISCO design was authorized to get the schematic design packet to the Massachusetts School Building Authority. The new 105,000-foot elementary school will be built at the site of Fort River School for students in grades K through 5. The MSBA will meet on April 26th, and then a town vote on whether to approve the $98 million project will go before voters on May 2nd. Icy this morning and scattered light mixed showers today, along with some patchy freezing drizzle. In the 30s this morning, cooling through the 20s this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight, some scattered snow and sleet showers, 20 to 26. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, high of 32 to 36. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. Uh, and t- today is Thursday, and it's uh, just a wonderful part of the week for me because we get to have Science and Sensibility with Brian Adams and his guests. Brian, before we uh, are introduced to your guest today, um, a few months ago you brought on Tom Riccardi, who rescues raptors, that is hawks and owls, uh, who have been injured, and he nurses them back to health. And on the front page of yesterday's Greenfield Recorder, was an article, the headline of which was Fallen Tree Destroys Raptors Enclosures, Kills Owls. Um, A bunch of the enclosures that were holding these incredible birds of prey um, were flattened by this tree. Uh, Pretty substantial loss for Tom Riccardi, who does all this wonderful work um, to bring these birds back to health. Uh, I just wanted to do a little pitch for him. Those interested in donating to Riccardi, it's it's a very expensive uh, enterprise to maintain and want to rebuild these um, these enclosures. If you wish to donate to that, um, you can. Uh, let me see. I'm looking right now. Riccardi, the Birds of Prey Rehabilitation Center, is what you could write to. It's in Conway, Massachusetts. If you wanted to send a check to the uh, to the Birds of Prey Rehabilitation Center, it's P.O. Box 26, Conway, Mass. 01341. But you can Google uh, the, the Birds of Prey Rehabilitation Center and get more information. So um, I just would really like to help uh, see those enclosures rebuilt so he can continue his fine work. So Brian Adams, who do you have today? 
thanks, Buzz, uh, and welcome, listeners, to Thursday. Uh, 50 years ago, 1973 was a big year for a lot of reasons. The main uh, thing we remember that uh, that year for is that my high school rock and roll band, Harvey Hubcap and the Wheels, played at my senior prom. So we all remember that, <laughs> I'm quite sure. But there are a number of other important things that happened that year as well. Um, the United States ended its involvement in the disastrous Vietnam War after signing the Paris Peace Accords. Uh, those of you old enough will remember that the Alaska oil pipeline bill uh, went through uh, Congress, allowing construction of a pipeline and very controversial. Um, uh, one of the most important things that happened was that the Supreme Court of the United States ruled on Roe v. Wade, uh, allowing uh, abortion rights, which have sadly been taken away from us in last year's Supreme Court ruling. The Yom Kippur War, the oil embargo, I don't know if people remember, who lived back then, the lines at gas stations. Um, and it really triggered a spike in oil prices and really began this conversation about conservation and research into renewable energy resources. One of the most important things that happened in 1973, the end of December, was the Endangered Species Act was signed into law by President Nixon, one of the most consequential pieces of environmental legislation ever. And to speak about the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, we have with us Susie Vana Ottingen. She is an endangered species biologist with the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under the Department of the Interior is the agency that uh, administers uh, compliance with the Endangered Species Act. Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it was fun going on the web and, and researching you and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And I love this sentence about you, Susie. It says, if you can't find her along the New England coast, working with roseate terns, piping plover, and northeastern beach tiger beetles. She's probably counting bats in summer roosts and winter hibernacula. That's a, a great descriptive sentence. So Susie, 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. Maybe you can begin by telling us what the act is, why it's important, and we'll go into some of the successes of the act. Sure, thank you. Um, and thanks for that reminder. That was really, I don't know where that came from. Um, the, uh, the act actually has two precursors. In the 1960s and 1970s, that's when the environmental movement really got started, right? And the um, early version of the act was the Endangered Species Preservation Act. It only um, really dealt with wildlife. And that was in 1966, and then it was revised and became the Endangered Species Conservation Act in 1969. But in 1973 is the act that we have more or less today, um, which now covers fish, wildlife, and plants. Plants was a new addition. Um, there have been amendments um, since at least, I think just one, but pretty much the 1973 act is what we have today. And you know, you, a you asked me um, why or, or what it's, 
Well, why did Congress enact it? And if you read the act, there's a preamble and it's just one sentence. And it says to provide the conservation of endangered and threatened species of fish, wildlife and plants and for other purposes. And when you look in the purposes, it outlines, you know, um, various species of fish, wildlife plants are in trouble and they may go extinct as a consequence of economic growth and development untempered by adequate concern and conservation. Congress wrote this. They wrote this for the American people. Um, that also says, which I have to read this periodically to be reminded, these species of fish, wildlife, and plants, these declining species that have been depleted and are in danger of um, being threatened with extinction, these species are of aesthetic, ecological, educational, historical, recreational, and scientific value to the nation and its people. And to me, that says it all. These our, our plants and animals are critical to our history, to who we are as a nation. And Congress recognized that when they wrote um, and passed the Endangered Species Act. I, I just, it's, I get goosebumps when I read that again. <laughs> uh, Susie, the act also essentially recognizes that species have an inherent right to exist no matter what their purpose is to human beings, right? So that's, that's a radical, that is a radical statement that, that no matter what economic development is challenged, no matter uh, whether they serve any useful purpose to humans, there's an inherent right for species to exist. It, it doesn't di directly say that, but when you read why it's so important, yeah. I mean, they have a right to exist, but it is because Congress feels it's critical to our nation. Um, these rare what are and some of the species. Um, but let me, what let me just, can I point out something else? And it kind of goes to your, your, question, your question. It also addresses the ecosystems upon which these endangered and threatened species depend may be conserved. So it goes beyond species. I mean, you could put them in a zoo and say, we've kept them, but it recognized that the ecosystems were equally critical and should be conserved. And that encompasses a whole lot more. And Susie, what are some of the endangered species out there that have been listed by the Endangered Species Act as endangered? Um, well, let's, if we focus on um, Massachusetts, for example, I mean, there's, there's a lot and I'd have to go online to pull them all up. But here in New England, the Rosia tern is an endangered species in Massachusetts on the coast. Um, Massachusetts has 50% of the entire breeding population of Rosia terns and they are restricted almost completely to two islands. So Massachusetts is a critical um, component of Rosia tern existence and recovery. And so we work with Mass Fish and Wildlife on that endangered species. Um, we have Jessup's milkfetch in New England, which is um, endangered and endemic. It's a little plant found in four locations on the Connecticut River in Vermont and New Hampshire. That's 
critically endangered. Of course, it's always been that way. It's always been small. If you want to include threatened species, they're also protected um, under the Endangered Species Act. Massachusetts has two tiger beetles, one, one population out of three in all of New England is in Massachusetts on the Connecticut River. And then we have the Northeastern Beach Tiger Beetle, where there are only two known locations north of Maryland, they're in Massachusetts as well. It's threatened because the rest of the range, there are more populations. But here in New England, it's extremely rare. Small world pagonia is a plant found a few, very few locations in Massachusetts. Um, that's a threatened species. That is one that was listed as endangered and we were able to reclassify it as threatened because so many populations were put in conservation and we found more populations, including some very nice populations on uh, near the coast of Massachusetts on um, conservation land, which was really fortunate. So we've, we've downlisted that from endangered to threatened. Um, Robin Sinkfoil is a success story. That is an endemic little tiny alpine plant on the top of Mount Washington and one other mountain that we were able to take off the list because it, we were able to reintroduce it into um, its only one of two populations and really make that population stable. And then we were able to introduce it to two other sites. So it's only found for four sites, all on White Mountain National Forest property with a long-term commitment to manage it protectively so we don't have to worry about it, um, except for, of course, the big question of the future climate change. And all these species are vulnerable to climate change. Um, another success story for New England is the piping plover, which was mentioned earlier, um, on coastal Massachusetts. Massachusetts is leading recovery for this species. And as a result, we've been able to implement some flexible management because, of course, not only do plovers like the beach, but people do too. <laughs> and so, uh, the state of Massachusetts is really managing these beaches for recreation, but protectively managing for plovers. And it shows because the numbers in Massachusetts and the other New England states just keep increasing. Unfortunately, the rest of the range is in this stable, but that's another species on the endangered species list where, you know, the state of Massachusetts has been a leader. There's a number of bats, um, Indiana bat, not in Massachusetts, it is in Vermont. Um, it was in Massachusetts, historically hibernating, but has not been seen in 50 years, maybe, not quite. Um, but the northern long-eared bat, currently listed as threatened, soon to be uh, listed as endangered when that rule becomes effective at the end of March. Um, that is a species found in Massachusetts that we're working hard uh, to research how to recover the species when the primary threat is this invasive fungus white nose syndrome but it also needs its habitat protected so those are a few local ones well another one is susie uh, von eddy and i just wanted to uh, throw in uh first of all the, the most prominent of the recovering endangered species is the bald eagle and i mentioned tom riccardi there's actually a photograph in our local newspaper yesterday of a bald eagle that was injured that he is nursing back to health in one of those uh sort of uh spaces that was damaged by this tree but i just wanted to, to i was in law school 
in the 70s and the snail darter was on wow. the front page. The Endangered Species Act, as Brian was, was reminding us, passed in 1973 when a dam was being built, I think in Tennessee, the Tillico Dam. Employing a lot of people was an important uh, sort of commercial location and work was stopped because the endangered species said that a small fish called a snail darter was being threatened. Uh, that went all the way to this US Supreme Court. And sometimes there's this tension between the endangered species, which we all want to protect, and commerce. What do you have to say about that? That's more common than not. <laughs> um, but the Endangered Species Act does have flexibility. That project was not permanently stopped. It was only temporarily because it did go through. Um, and I think most projects do go through. Those perhaps that don't probably shouldn't have for a multiple variety number of reasons, right? Um, but in New England, we have not we haven't really stopped a single project, certainly not in the 30 plus years that I have been working in New England. And I work in five states, um, all the New England states except Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont. And we've never had to call Jeopardy, which is part of the Endangered Species Act, where this project will jeopardize the existence of the species. Like if it goes through, we, we think the species is going extinct. We've not had any of that in New England because we've been able to work with the part, the applicants and our partners to minimize effects to the point where the project can go through. And, and I think that's, and that's what I, I, I read that it was the US Fish and Wildlife Service that actually took those snail darters, moved them to another location so that they were no longer endangered. And that's how that project continued. So people like you and Brian actually um, uh, solve the problem more often than not. Yeah. That's not our goal. We're talking. Not everybody's happy, but if the species can continue to exist and we can continue working on its recovery, then, then I'm happy. We're talking with Susie Von Ettingen. She is an endangered species biologist with the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act and its successes. Uh, and we'll be right back with more from Susie and on the SA after these messages. He climbed cathedral mountains, he saw silver clouds below. He saw everything as far as you can see. And they say that he got you're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. 
Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. You're listening to and Talk the Talk back. with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And welcome, welcome back, back Brian Adams. Uh, thank you, Buzz. Uh, and welcome back, Susie Von Ettingen. She is a, an endangered species biologist for the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, Fish and Wildlife are the ones the administ that administer the endangered species program. And that's what we are talking with Susie today, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Endangered Species Act in 1973. Susie, we don't have all that much time, but how does the species get onto the list as endangered or threatened? Well, the service works with their state partners, federal partners, academia, um, a host of people. We have a list of species at risk, for example, that we're watching um, and hopefully working to prevent them from being on the list by doing um, proactive conservation. But if that doesn't work and we have the data that a species is in danger of extinction or it's likely to reach that point in the foreseeable future, that would be a threatened status. We look at the best available science, um, habitat loss, the threat, well, threats, including habitat loss, impacts of climate change. We look at the population numbers. Are they reproducing, for example, or not? Um, we look at, are there other threats for the, against the species, overcollection, for example, for um, commercial or recreational or even scientific um, or educational purposes. Predation or disease sometimes triggers the, the drop in the population, such as the white-nose syndrome, where we determined that the populations for northern long-eared bat were so critically low that it warranted um, listing on the Endangered Species Act, continued to decline, and therefore we went from threatened to endangered. So we really have to do a lot of in-depth research and surveys working throughout the range of the species with our partners to find out what is the status is this species really in danger of extinction or threatened with extinction in the near future? If we determine it is, then we go through a rulemaking process. There's public input a bit for comments um, on this proposed rule that we do. And once we have received the comments and addressed them, if it warrants listing, we're going to list the species. Once a species is listed, we develop a recovery plan. And that basically lays out 
um, the blueprint for getting it off the list. Uh, we develop recovery objectives or goals. We have tasks um, that need to be done. Um, and if, um, for example, with the bald eagle, we may have had threshold numbers. It was restored throughout its range. It had good productivity. We're able to take it off the list. The Robin Sinkful that I worked on, it really had to do, we had objectives that it needed X number of populations. They needed to be protected in perpetuity, and we needed to have certain numbers and, pro and showing productivity, right? That the birds, that the plants were able to receive themselves and grow. We proved all that, we were able to take it off the list. Peregrine falcon is another one. where critically endangered due to DDT, and we were able to raise peregrine chicks, put them out in hacking stations, and actually reestablish the population in historical nesting sites, and some not so historical, like downtown Boston. Um, and those numbers came back to the point where it met our objectives and we were able to delist it. Does that kind of at happen? That right? certainly does. Thank you for that. Uh, UMass, we have the peregrine falcons nesting. Yeah. And I think it's the Graduate uh, Research Institute there, which is uh, which is really, really pretty cool. Um, Susie, I'm dying to ask you one question. You've been working for the organization for a long time through one president after another, some very sympathetic and very uh, uh, in tune to environmental issues, and some like Trump, not quite so much. What was it like working under President Trump? I have to say the regional office located in Hadley really buffered us, I think, from a lot of that. And as a biologist, I'm just a field biologist. I just put my head down and go to work and do the best I can. And we're so fortunate in New England that our partners really filled in the spaces when we maybe couldn't do as much as we had hoped. Um, so I, I came to work every day. I got my job done not a whole lot differently than other presidents. I mean, I was also working under uh, the Secretary of Interior Watt briefly. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I've seen a lot. Who were your partners? Oh my Who gosh! I, mean, I would take half an hour to list them all, but all the state wildlife agencies, NGOs. Um, I, I mean, I get to work with partners in Brazil and Canada and the UK. When we have shared species in common, we just we get together and we have a shared objective, and that is to protect those and conserve those species. Um, academia, UMass is, is in many ways, in so many different ways, plovers and tiger beetles, and you know, it's just amazing. Um, James Watt, for those that don't know, was Secretary of the Interior under Ronald Reagan, and he famously, uh, I think he rafted down the Grand Canyon and called it the three most boring days of his life. So there's, there you go for a Secretary of the Interior. I guess if you could live through James Watt, you could live through Trump as well. We've been talking with Susie Von Ettingen. She's a, a wildlife uh, endangered species biologist for the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Susie, so many more questions to ask you, but so little time to do it. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. We're gonna take a break and we'll be right back. So stay with us and uh, and we'll listen to these messages and be back with more Talk the Talk. Thank you. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Businessman Eric Schur may be at risk of losing liquor licenses on his music venues in downtown Northampton. The Northampton License Commission seized the liquor license from Schur's Pearl Street nightclub, which has been largely dormant since the onset of the pandemic in 2020. Mass Live reports commissioners told Schur he has until June to reopen the Iron Horse Music Hall, which has also been closed since the pandemic began. He also has until June to reopen the Green Room, a bar a few doors down from Iron Horse. Sure will have the opportunity to appeal the revocation of his Pearl Street nightclub license to the state's Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission. If he fails to reopen the two properties, he risks losing his licenses to serve alcohol on site. The limited supply of liquor licenses in Northampton has made getting one either a matter of immense luck or great cost. Jury selection continues today in the case of a retired Westfield police detective accused of killing his wife. Brian Fanion allegedly killed his wife Amy during an argument on his lunch break and staged it as a suicide at the couple's home. Police allegedly recovered Google searches on Fanion's electronic devices related to keeping as much of his pension as he could amid a divorce. Fanion is charged with first-degree murder. An owl flew through a glass window of a Northampton home yesterday. According to the Northampton Police Department, the owl flew through the resident's glass window, shattering the glass. Northampton Animal Control was called and determined there were no injuries. The owl was then returned to the wilderness. Icy this morning and scattered light mixed showers today, along with some patchy freezing drizzle. High temperatures in the 30s this morning, cooling through the 20s this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight, some scattered snow and sleet showers this evening. Overnight low of 20 to 26. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, windy, a high of 32 to 36. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Picture perfect days here in the Valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the Valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at noon, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PVHabitat.org. Consumers are drowning in debt. A new report from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York said that by the end of 2022, credit card balances totaled $986 billion. That's an increase of $61 billion over the previous quarter, the biggest one-quarter increase on record. United Airlines says it will do more to keep families together aboard its aircraft. The airline's new system will allow families to book seats next to each other for no additional cost. The new process is geared toward families with children under the age of 12. Former hotel housekeeper Tara Richardson, telling her story for well and good, has a warning for travelers. Your hotel room is probably not as clean as you think it is. She says coffee makers in particular are a problem because many times housekeepers don't have time to clean them. 
I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And uh, this is Buzz Eisenberg, and uh, this is our Take 5 segment. Every week we talk music with one of our musicologists, and it is uh, Glenn Siegel with us today. Hello, Glenn. Good morning, Buzz. Nice to uh, hear your voice. Uh, It's good to hear your voice. So I just wanted to, before uh, you introduce us to your guest today on Tuesday, which was, of course, Fat Tuesday, um, at the Drake, uh, I just want to celebrate our new performing arts center in the center of Amherst, the Drake. Uh, I went there to hear Samira Evans join the Green Street Trio, and uh, they celebrated Fat Tuesday in truly classic New Orleans style. The musicians were wearing beads, and Samira Evans was dressed as one would dress if they were performing in Fat Tuesday. And she sung song after song about New Orleans. It was packed. The audience was thrilled, and I'm still smiling 48 hours later. So I just wanted to uh, say the Drake is a really important thing to have. And uh, as is Jazz Shares and you, Glenn Siegel, a real resource for music lovers here. What do you have for us today? Well, thank you, Buzz. And uh, I would I, I didn't make it uh, on Tuesday, but I would like to add my uh, thanks uh, to Paul Arslanian and the Green Street Trio and the great tradition that he's built uh, all over from Green Street to the Clarion to the Bowling Alley and now to the Drake. He's really uh, invigorated the local jazz scene in the Pioneer Valley. So thank you to Paul and uh, thank you to Samira, who uh, I'm sure uh, invoked the New Orleans spirit. So uh, my guest today is alto saxophonist Jorge Sylvester, who was born in Cologne, Panama, and attended the Panama Conservatory of Music and the University of Panama. He received a degree in music from the State University of New York at New Paltz in 1981 and has lived in New York since. He's performed with such notables as Stefan Harris, Carl Berger, David Murray, Sekou Sundiata, the Oliver Lake Big Band, Bobby Sanabria, Joe Bowie's defunct Big Band, and Nora McCarthy, with whom he leads several ensembles. He'll perform at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield on Saturday, March 4th at 7.30 p.m. as part of Pioneer Valley Jazz Share's 11th season of concerts. Good morning, Jorge. Uh, Let's begin by uh, having you describe your music to those who have not heard you play. How would you describe it to the uninitiated? Well, my my music, uh, first of all, is uh, I want to say thanks for having me here. Now, my music um, is a very compositive combination of Caribbean rhythms, which basically is part of my entire heritage. Um, As you said, I was born in Panama, Colón. And also is a combination of improvisation, rhythmic, uh, 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 sounds that I very much use to input what I want to convey when it comes to the composition. Now, uh, I have been playing this music for such a long time that at this point in time, I have a whole bunch of different projects that uh, each project is a different idea, is a different uh, concept, right? So, uh, for example, my AIDS Collective, 
which is based more on uh, Afro-Caribbean rhythms, and but in the avant-garde sense, which is uh, an extension of my Ace Trio, one of my CDs that I did in the, in the, in the year 2001 with uh, Bobby Sanabria and Donald Nix. Now the Ace Collective is an extension of that, which uh, uses uh, three more elements, the voice, the trumpet, and the piano, right? So now uh, I also have a new project, as I told you before, is this uh, is the uh, Spontaneous Expression Ensemble. This ensemble is an eight-piece eight ensemble octet, and we just recorded uh, a new CD that came out in the year 2021. And mm -hmm. uh, the octet is really much... Uh, it's a very different uh, uh, project in terms of the sense that we use spontaneous expression. Uh, the compositions are really much done on the spot, right? Now, uh, I have three different compositions that are very short sketches that we are going to be performing at the uh, at the Jazz Share uh, Festival. That music itself is very, very, very right in the moment. There's a lot of Caribbean in it, obviously, because it's part of my heritage, and that's the way I hear the stuff. Um, I also have a, a, a 20-piece orchestra, which is a conceptual motion orchestra. I have a trio with Norma McCarthy, voice and, and saxophone only. I have a, a very much interested group project that I would like to record one of these days. It's, it's called the music of Eric Dolphy, and it's basically using his music and recomposing it for a quintet. Also, I have uh, what we call the uh, uh, the, the trio with uh, special guests, and that trio is, is more an experimental trio itself. So, my music, in 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 in, in essence, I would say, is a compilation of Caribbean rhythms with improvisation. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's that's what I'm about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about the factors that shaped your approach to music, uh, mentors that you've had in your life, musical influences, and so forth. Mentors. My first mentor was my, my, my teacher back home in Cologne, a guy by the name of Euclid Hall. He's... Uh, very, very, very knowledgeable person. Um, he was very much the uh, main influence when I started to play the saxophone. I studied saxophone, alto saxophone with him. And uh, from there on, I moved on to other influences. For example, I had a, a very much, very, very interested influence in uh, when I lived in Madrid, Spain. I worked with this composer, pianist named by the name of Luis Vecchio. And Vecchio was very much influential when it came to uh, playing the so-called free avant-garde music. I played with him for years and recorded. I played tenor saxophone, soprano, and alto. And Luis was a very, I used to call him the, uh, the South American sonra. Because <laughs> he... He was really much into to that type of uh, experimentation. He believed in, in in people from other planets. He had a big telescope 
in his living room and he will be really much looking up the skies and uh, he he was very he was very uh can I tell very eccentric guy very eccentric he was a big influence on my my avant-garde playing after that i would say ramsey amin when i met ramsey amin violinist composer played with Cecil taylor he was uh, i met him at the creative music studio in 1980 when i went to uh, carl Berger music studio ramsey amin was a very influential uh, 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 musician when it comes to uh, conceptualizing or what can I say like uh, focusing on ideas in fact he was the main character or the main musician that really got, got me into thinking about my musical heritage in terms of the uh, Ace Collective, the Ace Trio, the Afro-Caribbean experimental as i call it right so ramsey was very influential in that sense um i later on met nora mccarthy she did some influence she made some influence in my uh in my music because she brought together what i consider a very much part of uh my sound she used the poetry she's an ex- a very influence uh writer she can really write she composed some of her music too that i orchestrate with the big band and she uh she brought that word to the music the word as i would say she would say the same thing but she influenced some of my music uh in a in a, in a very good sense in a very wide range she really ex- uh, uh, used her words like when i first met well, her, her hey, i was Jorge. Yeah. Sylvester, if I may interrupt, just because some of our listeners might not be familiar with the artists we're talking about, when I think of Caribbean music, I think of Calypso from Trinidad and Tobago, or I think of reggae like Bob Marley, or I think of ska music. Are those the kind of influences we're talking about when you say Caribbean music and improv? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of uh, the Calypso, the Ra, the reggae, I played that back home. I used to play with a guy named Lord Panama. But, you know, I didn't mention those the, that type of music because what happened is that it was a natural thing. I, I, don't even, in, I don't even think of it as an influence. I think of it as part of who I am because all of that happened in a natural sense. Lord Panama, I did some records with him before I let, let, went to Spain, right? And um, I used to play reggae music uh, in Panama. I did mostly, uh, you know, I did a lot of merengue music here, so in the U.S. But as I said, I don't, I don't think is, I don't think of it as an influence. When I say, when I, when I mention influence, these influence develop my, my, my whole conception of what my music is today. When I mention these musicians, in terms of. You know that comes with me, <laughs> the Caribbean thing. Sure, it comes with me in, in the national. Sure, and you're so. incredible. So, uh, we're, yeah. we're, this is a take jazz, uh, take five jazz sequence with a um, um, good friend. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Jorge because, Sylvester, know. and with uh, Glenn, we're going to take a break. Yeah, we're going to come back, and um, you and Jorge will then explain more about. It. I want to hear about his performance. It's upcoming right after these messages. 
Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we're back with Jorge Sylvester, the great alto saxophonist and composer who's bringing his quartet to the Hawks and Reed uh, Music Center in Greenfield on March 4th for a Jazz Shares concert that begins at 7.30. We're really excited to have Jorge uh, back in the Valley. We uh, Jazz Shares produced a concert of his in 2015, and this is uh, our first opportunity to invite him back to Western Massachusetts. Um, your quartet, Jorge, will feature vocalist Nora McCarthy, pianist Kuba Kichokchi, and drummer Tony Moreno. Tell us about them and how they found their way into your ensemble. 
Oh, um, you know, I, I, as I said before, I played with Nora McCarthy for years. We, we, we're, we're a team. You know, she, uh, she writes a lot of lyrics for some of my music. Um, she's a vocal artist. She's a composer also. She has her own projects, and um, she's been doing work with the big band. And, you know, let me just say, for example, this group that I'm performing with, you know, initially it was going to be a solo saxophone uh, project, right? I've had that in mind for a long time. In fact, I think Ramsey Amina offer to write the lyrics, I mean, the, the, the what do you call it, the liner notes for my CD. Uh, the other player were... Jose Davila, which is not in this group, because we, you know, we we break it down to a quartet. Some of the other players are Tony Moreno, as you said. Tony Moreno and I, I've known Tony for years. We went to Spain back in eighty eighty two, nineteen eighty two, I should say. What am I talking about? Nineteen eighty two, and we played out there with Luis Vecchio, mother fat. And since then, I've known Tony. We had a quartet, uh, sextet, and with a bass player from Madrid. And we did some gigs out there also, even open up for Miles Davis with the sextet, the Chastain Sylvester sextet. Tony and I go way back. As I say, he's an excellent composer, drummer. Um, Cuba, I met Cuba playing with some other musicians here in New York City. And... uh, He's an excellent pianist. He's from uh, Poland. He's very young. He's extremely, extremely, extremely technical. And his, 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 his approach to harmony is very unique. I love his playing. So, you know, that's the quartet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this, yeah, we did the CD, and also Vincent Chance is part of the CD. I wish I could have brought the, uh, the octet out there. <laughs> But the uh, spontaneous expression is a, it's, it starts with a quartet, small group, quintet, sextet, septet, or octet. The entire ensemble. So that's that's the approach. So that's that yeah. group that we're bringing. We're bringing the quartet. Yeah, yeah. we're very excited to uh, hear your music. Um, tell us how you prepare for a concert. Does your practice regimen change when you're getting ready for a concert? How do you choose the repertoire, etc.? That's an interesting question. I love that question because for this project, um, I personally do my my regular workout at home. You know, I uh, practice my my you know my exercises, my scales, whatever, my long tones. You know, I do a lot of long tones, but the concept behind uh, spontaneous expressions, as I said, it was a, it was going to be a, a saxophone solo project, which it was going to be all saxophone solo. So what happened when I did this performance at the Baha'i Center for this group, I uh, decided to add these musicians with it. Uh, this was a, a venue that was led by... Uh, Curated, I should say, by Mike Lungo. He was uh, this Gillespie musical director years ago. He, he was a Baha'i, and he passed away after of COVID later. But 
the idea behind the concept is to just improvise freely. I have three compositions that are sketches. They're worked out, and it's open structure. Uh, a lot of open structure, a lot of uh, collective improvisation, a lot of solo improvisation. We're going to have solo saxophone. We're going to have uh, duets. We're going to have trios. We're going to have quartets within the whole the whole uh, uh, format of you know the group. These these improvisations are totally free. They're very much in the moment. Uh, we did you know we did one of these performances at, uh, in Harlem at uh, a series that Craig Harris uh, curated, and it was it was a great great performance. We loved it. Uh, we're gonna try and do the same thing here, but there's gonna be some other structures of compositions that were added. We have a, a couple of new new compositions that we're going to be pretty much uh, uh, premiering in, in Northampton. Great. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. You know, the other thing with this 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 um, group or this ensemble, Glenn, is that um, it's never the same. Mm-hmm. That's the nature and, uh, of improvisation. So we're going to have to, yeah. we're gonna have to stop the it nature. there. So tell us one more time, when is the performance? Yeah. Where is the performance? Yeah, the performance by uh, Jorge Sylvester and his quartet will be on Saturday, March 4th at 7.30 p.m. at Hawks and Reed, Main Street in downtown Greenfield. And I should also say that Jazz Shares has a concert this Saturday at the Institute for Musical Arts in Goshen featuring... Uh, the Patricia Brennan Quartet. So jazzshares.org for all that information. Thanks, Buzz. Thank you so much, Glenn Ziegel. So for those of you who've been listening in the morning, thank you for spending some of your day with us. For those listening in the afternoon, coming up right after the news break, another full hour of Talk to Talk, including American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts Executive Director Carol Rose and the Reverend and the Rabbi with Reverend Carol Bull. For Bill Newman, for Dan Torres, for our WHMP team, I'm Buzz Eisenberg for Talk to Talk. The fete is grand, bottles of all description, you must understand, liquor to supply a nation, I have ordered...